Hey, Art of Power listeners, it's me, your host, Arthi Shahani. Our show has grown a lot in the last couple months, climbing high up the Apple charts. To welcome the many newer folks, we wanted to play one of our favorite episodes, one with a liberating take on a paralyzing problem, burnout. It's with Jeffrey Canada. Have a listen and let us know what you think. And to those of you who've been with us from the get, thanks. We love you. If you've got two voices in your head, one says, I want to do something huge, leave my mark. The other says, I don't want to work weekends. I want a sustainable life. Well, let Jeffrey Canada be the third voice. This is going to get me in trouble, but it's true. People people want a life and they need a life. Mm. And the balance of the mission we're on drives us in a way that we don't feel like we have time to waste. It sounds like you might be allergic to the concept of work-life balance. <laughs> it's, it's interesting uh, because if you look at what's at stake, I don't think there's much of a choice. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm your host, Arthi Shahani. Today, Jeffrey Canada, a revolutionary in education. He is founder and president of Harlem Children's Zone. He was determined to help the so-called bad kids. He got 100% of his students into college. His labor of love in Harlem was handpicked by the federal government as the model for America. And he has a secret on how to not burn out. Jeffrey Canada formed his grand thesis on education back when he was in elementary school. My friends and my brother, my oldest brother, Mm -hmm. decisions were made about their intellect when they were in the second, sometimes the third grade. Mm -hmm. And by the fifth grade, I thought this was unethical. Hmm. Why? Because I knew these people. I knew my brother. My brother was was at least as smart as I was, and yet... He was in a class that suggested he was not smart. Mm -hmm. As a child growing up in the South Bronx, a little north of Harlem, Jeff was different from his peers. He did great in school, total nerd boy, and he could hang on the streets, play ball, fist fight, all of it. He was one of the very few to leave and go to college. He went to Bowdoin, then he went to Harvard School of Education. Doors kept opening for him. And as he moved further and further away from poverty, he kept looking back, thinking about the many left behind. And no one seemed to care. It was just standard. These were all African-American, Puerto Rican kids at that time in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And it devastated me to realize that these kids, uh, their lives were being determined by people who were making decisions based on evidence that I thought was faulty. Because when you hung out, whether it's your brother, whether it's your friends on the block, you saw they were smart. Yes. This is the typical, uh, I think, educator's evidence. How well do you speak? Uh, How well do you read? Uh, You know, what's your vocabulary? And 
we grew up in the streets. Yes, we spoke as they speak in the streets. Canada came from an educated family. His mom went to college. She didn't finish. Her parents ran out of money, but she did start. I had a mother who loved to read and uh, let me read adult books. Mm-hmm. Now, you won't get this uh, because you're too young. Uh, when I was growing up, all of the world's knowledge was contained as best we could in a set of encyclopedias. Encyclopedia Britannica, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that young after all, Jeffrey Canada. <laughs> I am stunned that you knew that. Mm -hmm. We were the only kids that I knew of in my school who had a set of encyclopedias. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was fascinated. I thought I was going to read the whole thing. You know, you starting with Aardvark and I was going to go through. Of course, I never did. But we used to bring our friends over and open up the book Mm. and look at Africa, look at the animals. Mm. All the kids, all of them were curious and These kids could beat me in so many different other things. There was obviously nothing wrong with their intellect. And I couldn't understand why educators couldn't pick that up. The whole school system had written them off, put them in the dumb kids' classes, which signaled strongly, we've given up on you. You get a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not smart because you've been convinced of that. So why bother? Because I'm not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So you don't work as hard. Mm-hmm. You get a late, lousy grade, which proves, again, that you're not smart, which undermines your... People who think they are smart, when you get something that's tough, you spend time working on it because you're like, I'm going to get this. Why do you think you had so much compassion for the kids who weren't in the smart class, the nerd class? Uh, as yeah. opposed to just kind of feeling proud and better. Because that could be another really understandable reaction. Is like, oh, I come from nothing, but like I'm coming to the top and I'm going to keep going to the top. Well, you know, it is uh, this dual experience that I had uh, growing up uh, in a community that a part of your self-worth was based on whether or not you could hang on the corners and Mm. on the stoops with the other kids. Mm. Most of the kids who were in these top classes, they couldn't go outside and be with the other kids uh, because it was a rough, hard world out there. And I, I I was desperate to fit in with this other cohort. We were loud. We were profane. You're basically saying, and this is the first time I've heard this, that your own sense of masculinity, of wanting to be with the pack, actually helped you to be more compassionate. (laughs) Absolutely. It it absolutely Hmm. did. You know, the the, uh, first book I wrote, Fist Stick Knife Gun, uh, I talked about probably a story that everybody who read the book uh, relates to was my mother raising four boys. Our father left us. I must have been somewhere between three and four Mm -hmm. when he walked out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's my mother with four boys worried about whether or not we were going to be able to uh, grow up with confidence in the South Bronx. This is such a uh, fear of so many folks who are raising kids in tough neighborhoods. Are they going to be fearful? Are they going to be able to make friends? Are they going to be able to handle themselves? That's what fascinated me 
in your description of your childhood and your mom is she is the mom who is pushing books in your hands and she is the mom who is telling you and your brothers, you better go out there and fight. Yes, that's exactly right. It's such a contradiction. When I was growing up, if you were considered to be a real smart kid, you likely you were going to get beaten up. I would just as likely be one of those kids out there wanting to uh, beat up on a kid for uh, being smart, even though I was in the same class getting the same grades, if not better Mm -hmm. grades than that kid. That Mm -hmm. was just part of the contradictions of growing up uh, where the culture that you have to grow up in to be protected. Remember, these kids also Mm -hmm. protected you because Mm -hmm. other kids would victimize you. So your protectors uh, were kids who were actually uh, convincing you to do things which was going to end up being dangerous and mm-hmm. sometimes undermine your life chances. And mm-hmm. that's that schizophrenic uh, childhood I experienced. And I just think I was more aware of it than most folks mm-hmm. and became really obsessed at a very early age that this whole experience was going to destroy huge numbers of kids. Obsessed at a very early age. Obsessed, the word that describes the inner wiring of every true entrepreneur. Obsession with a problem that must be solved. Jeffrey Canada came of age at a time when leading social scientists would say things out loud, like, black kids may just be intellectually inferior. Jeff, who was now familiar with the lives of the well-to-do, he thought, oh no. Harlem kids do not lack intelligence. They lack investment. Our kids have had a lack of exposure at home and in other areas. They don't get to go to the summer camps. They don't get to take the trips to Europe. They're not having these experiences which broaden their horizon. The rich kids might be visiting three, four, five countries in a summer, and your kids are maybe watching 13 hours of TV a day and hanging out. That's, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they're, they're not watching PBS, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the challenge, right, that, that we face. And you can tell a kid anything you want about metamorphosis. But you take that kid out into the woods and let them see change happening when that chrysalis is in, in coals, becoming into a butterfly. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to explain anything. I got it. I understand. This mm-hmm. happens in nature. Jeffrey Canada decided this was a challenge he could take on. He could go back home to inner city New York and transform it. He went to Harlem. This was Harlem back in the day when buildings were abandoned. Trash was not collected. Folks selling drugs openly. They were lining people up in the street to sell drugs. Uh, It just looked like a place that every nerve in your body said, get out of here as quickly as you could. It was one of the most forgotten tracts of land in America. 
the handful of educators paying attention to Harlem, their strategy by and large was to focus on the sliver of kids who showed so much self-motivation and innate promise they might actually have a chance of getting the hell out of here. Jeffrey Canada's approach? The exact opposite. Go after every child from the cradle to college. Build schools that recruit even the so-called delinquents. Get the kids' parents coming to us when they're in crisis, when they're about to lose their homes or their kids and need homelessness or foster care prevention. Help them become homeowners through little-known city programs. Use school as the entry point to spin a web of addictive and healthy habits. Heck, don't wait till the kids are born when they're in the womb. Get young moms and dads-to-be, many of them kids themselves, into parenting school. Jeff actually called it Baby College, a nine-week workshop that teaches new mothers and fathers how to parent. You know, you're hitting. He would create one of the most hands-on, immersive, even intrusive educational complex that New York City, maybe even America, had ever seen. I hope I don't sound disrespectful when I point out just how utterly ridiculous your work early on may have looked to certain critics. Okay. And and, and, and let me just, I'm saying this with utter respect. No, I I got it. Uh, I I got it and and I lived it. When we decided to create the zone, um, I tried to convince folks it could be done. The Zone, Harlem Children's Zone. Now, here's the thing about talking a big game, having a huge vision. A lot of people, even those closest to you, don't believe you. Jeff remembers one day he was giving a tour to one of his biggest funders, a person who had already decided to invest in the nonprofit. And he said, wow, Jeff, if only you had a chance to really pull it off. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, but you're my biggest funder, and you don't even believe I can do it? What? And he wasn't even a critic, and he thought it was crazy. Uh, so then I realized that uh, this was going to be one of those things that I was going to have to surround myself with, a group of folk uh, who were believers. Jeff found those folks. He recalls two of his earliest recruits were longtime friends, both black men he met at Bowdoin. One grew up in the Nation of Islam, even knew Malcolm X. They believed Jeff's sprawling vision was fundamentally correct. They didn't always agree on how to get there. We would have fierce debates, and and they wouldn't necessarily agree with everything I said. Mm -hmm. But when I made that decision... Even if they didn't agree with me, they did everything humanly possible to prove me right. Mm. Uh, And Mm. that ability for folks to say, okay, I I have a problem with this, but if if you're the leader, if you're going to do this, I'm going to make sure you're successful, uh, is part of what I think people who are building successful enterprise have to have with them. One of Jeffrey Canada's biggest problems at the beginning was biting off more than he could chew. He fully owns that. For example, when he was building something out of nothing, he needed to convince parents, hey, pull your kids out from whatever public school they've been assigned and send them to my brand new charter school you've never heard of. He sold the idea by saying, if you step into our network, 
you will never have to step out. We got you. When your kids are done with middle school, you won't have to scramble to keep them out of a bad high school with high murder rates. Your kids can go to our safe, good high school. And they believed me. And I promised them that. But he couldn't deliver. Getting the middle school to work took way more than Jeff expected. He couldn't pull off a high school in time for an early group of graduating eighth graders. So I had a meeting. None of the parents knew what it was. I was going to tell my parents and kids I wasn't opening up the high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was, I was so distraught. I was in tears literally that whole day. I couldn't even think about what that meeting was going to be like. Mm-hmm. You had to break your promise. Oh, I was going to break my promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, those children had trusted me. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This is terrible optics. It's a moment any founder would want to hide. But Jeff, he had this education reporter, a guy named Paul Tuff, who'd been trailing him, interested in writing a book about Jeff's work. Jeff invited the reporter into the meeting. And he said, who on their worst day professionally would call a reporter to witness uh, their failure? Mm. And the reason I called Paul Tuff in was I said, I'm going to fix this. I need everybody to understand I failed massively. I Mm -hmm. failed in the worst way possible, but I didn't quit. Mm -hmm. And I figured out what I did wrong and I fixed it. And today our schools are, you know, we've eliminated the achievement gap and between our kids and white kids and ELA and math. And people say, okay, you know, the guy's running good schools. It's extraordinary. What you're saying is that fairly early on in your journey toward revolutionizing education for the most forgotten, the day you have to break your promise to parents who already have a hard time believing you're going to deliver, you make sure that it's as public as possible, that your failure is fully on the record. Now, you know how I hear that? Oh. How I hear that is, I'll be damned. This guy at one of the worst moments in his career has enough of a glimmer of hope inside, enough faith, such steady commitment that he knows this too shall pass, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make good on that promise. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. That's what it was. This, this is funny. I don't, I don't mean for it to sound maybe in the way it's going to sound. I did this for all of those young people who want to follow in blazing a path uh, to say to them, There's a good chance if you've chosen a tough enough thing, you might fail. And if you're lucky, you'll fail anonymously. But there's also a chance that you might fail publicly. And you may break a lot of hearts. That's the point that people often believe it can't be done, that they give up or uh, sort of decide, uh, you know, this is not for me. Uh, But, but. If you're prepared to spend the time, the energy, the focus, you can use that to correct what went wrong. And in the end, uh, you will be successful. 
you look at almost anyone who's been very successful in their life and there have been these failures. And I just think in, in not-for-profit, the failures are seen as a terminal event. Mm. Uh, and if it's Steve Jobs, it's seen as an event that led to getting better and doing more uh, mm. and creating a better product. After the break, how Jeffrey Canada could afford to fail. Literally, failure costs money. I'm from New York, too, and like Jeffrey Canada, I grew up learning failure is a bad word. When I moved out west to cover Silicon Valley for NPR, I started to see that for a small subset of people, failure is a badge of honor. Fail fast, fail hard, it is romantic to fail. Now, it's not just because the tech industry is enlightened about how failure can lead to learning. It's also got to do with money. To fail, you have to afford to fail. You have to have the cash reserves, the access to capital. Many nonprofit leaders have enormous visions, like Jeff, but no real plan for how to get the money it takes to try, fail, try, fail. Jeff wanted to make sure he had the money. It wasn't in Harlem, Upper Manhattan. It was in Lower Manhattan with all those wolves on Wall Street. Jeff wanted their capital. So he invited one of them, a hedge fund manager, to join his board of directors. The response? Jeff, look, I know you. I have a lot of passion. You feel for these young people, and you'll do anything to support them, and that comes through. He says, we don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear stories like that from all over the world. Passionate people with great... What we care about is, do you have any evidence that this stuff actually works? Mm-hmm. And he said, if I'm going to give you any message, uh, it's that spend time developing the evidence before trying to attract business types to this work. Mm-hmm. That changed my whole view of the importance of collecting data of focusing on results. Up to this point, Jeffrey Canada was kind of like a chief overseeing dozens of fiefdoms, each run by passionate, driven program directors who couldn't see beyond their little piece of it into the full life of the child. The problem with that is Jeffrey Canada could have a hunch. This hands-on approach is going great, but he didn't really know. Is there a correlation between students' grades and the number of our programs outside of class they attend? Does parents' attendance make a difference in kids' grades? What does critical mass mean exactly? Like how many families on a given block do we have to reach? How many times a year with what specific program? So I met with my senior team and I told them that we were going to be a data-driven organization. We were going to Mm collect it and analyze it, and it was going to be transparent. We were going to post it up so everybody knew how everybody was doing in the organization. That is, Harlem Children's Zone would become a laboratory for funders and their research. 
I remember we had that leadership meeting and about a third of my uh, directors uh, resigned. Mm. They just basically mm. said, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to save children, not to count numbers. If that's the kind of person you want to be, I'm not into it. Mm. Uh, and I, I thought that was fine. That was a fine decision for them to make. But it wasn't going to change my way of making sure we were going to be accountable to results. Jeff Canada did get that hedge fund guy to join his board, and then another and another. One in particular stands out. He became fascinated. And when he heard the vision mm-hmm. and the fact that we were going to hold ourselves accountable for results, and we were going to be collecting data and analyzing it, uh, he, I, I had asked him if he would join the board, but before I could even get the sentence completed, he said yes. His name is Stan Drunkenmiller. He's raised millions of dollars out of his own pocket and from his friends to fund Harlem Children's Zone at critical moments. Jeff and Stan have become a bit of an odd couple. This is not paying you back well for what you said about me on national TV. But the dirty little secret about Jeff is he's a data geek. Making the rounds, evangelizing this strange, not-so-little nonprofit. But to do what Harlem Children's Zone does, it's expensive, is it not, Stan? The first time Jeff told me the idea, that's exactly what I said. Jeff Canada's diverse alliances do not go unnoticed. That's the knock on it, that everyone says, well, look, you're getting tens of millions of dollars in private donations and government funds every year. It's incredibly expensive. Not everyone can afford that. Well, one of the things that... Is any part of you worried? (laughs) I'm in Harlem. I've started a charter school that has upset many white liberals who think schools should be public. There shouldn't be these charter schools popping up. I'm running a baby college that some would sort of criticize as cultural imperialism. Why are you teaching black parents how to parent? There's a yep. lot. There's a very loaded message in that. Yep. And now I'm yep. putting white hedge fund guys on my board. Yep. I have, I have progressive friends who have spent their life defending me against folks who just say he's just total sellout. My job was to raise the resources necessary to actually give us a chance to get this work done. And I was going to raise the resources from where the resources are. Uh, And if the resources happen to be concentrated in the hands of a few key white men uh, in New York, uh, I'm going to go to those men and get the money. Mm-hmm. If it was white women, I'd go to them. If it was black women, I'd go to them. I don't care uh, where that resource is. So I have plenty of critics. I uh, had told my kids, uh, my, my grown kids and my grandkids, I have grandkids who are in their 20s, uh, please do not read Twitter feeds and other things about your grandfather and your father, because you're going to be like, who, who is that God? Right. Uh, and if God has blessed me with access, uh, I feel like I would not be doing my job if I didn't turn that access uh, into resources.
Jeff Canada's fans outnumbered his critics, and Harlem Children's Own started to become much bigger than Harlem. That journalist who'd been invited to witness the horrible failure, he ended up writing a glowing New York Times magazine cover story on Jeff and a glowing book called Whatever It Takes, Jeffrey Canada's Quest to Change Harlem and America. Students' standardized test scores went up. Turns out, according to the data, there was a correlation between a student's performance in school and a family's participation in programs outside of class. Jeff was on TV a lot. He got 60 Minutes with CNN's Anderson Cooper. And then some guy Jeff didn't really know started to talk about him a lot. Jeffrey Canada, the program's inspirational, innovative founder, put it best. Instead of helping some kids beat the odds, the Harlem Children's Zone is actually changing the odds altogether. A young political animal. And that's why, when I'm president... He wanted to take Jeff's work national. ...be to replicate the Harlem Children's Zone in 20 cities across the country. Interestingly, presidential candidate Barack Obama. (laughs) He endorses you, but you don't endorse him, right? I love this story. He, while he's campaigning for the presidency, he takes what you're doing with Harlem Children's Zone and throws it into a national conversation. And you don't even call him. (laughs) The person with the least chance of becoming president, this junior African-American senator, uh, (laughs) wants to take my baby and hold it up as an example, which means nobody else will touch it. And I said, no, hey, guys, no, wait, I got to offer it to everybody. It can't be one person's thing. Clearly, Jeff's better at nonprofit leadership than analyzing politics. As uh, fate would have it, once he won the nomination, I was like, uh, who could have figured this out? Hmm. There's an opportunity uh, to really make this now a way of dealing with poverty uh, in this country. We call these communities promise zones. And I met with a good friend of mine, Angela Glover Blackwell, whom I just happen to think is one of the smartest people in the world. If you're lifting up what works, you need to really have some way of knowing that it does work and utilizing data about who's being served, what progress is being Uh, made. She had created an organization called Policy Link. Jeff, the practitioner, and his friend, the policy expert, got cracking. They wrote a game plan for how the Obama administration could take the Harlem model. Uh, And they used probably 75 or 80 percent of our Hmm. uh, suggestions in shaping the the program. So we're here today to announce the first five promise zones in America. It's hard to explain how this went from me thinking, boy, this has no chance to actually becoming part of a, a federal administration. Jeff Canada's fringe idea became a new normal. There are currently 22 promise zones under development in cities across the country. It is the blueprint many are trying to replicate. I have a theory. For the promise zones, for the Harlem Children's model to work, It's going to take finding more Jeffrey Canada's, more people from the block who are obsessed with fixing it. Jeff managed to find such a person for his baby. 
Jeff stepped down as chief of Harlem Children's Zone. He felt it was time to retire. His new CEO is Kwame Owusu-Kesi, who's also one of my best friends on earth. Well, the funny thing is, uh, I say Jeff Canada saves people from uh, poverty, and I might be the the only person he's saved from a life of prosperity. (laughs) So here's the story of how Kwame and I met. Jeff didn't think he was meeting his successor. A woman at Morgan Stanley, who was on Jeff's board, she asked him to take on Kwame through a program the investment bank ran to put their young staffers in nonprofits for a year. I kind of, you know, without her seeing me, rolled my eyes and said, oh, sure, sure, sure. Why'd you roll your eyes at, at the idea of him? Look, we're, we're working in Harlem, and it is a tough, tough community. Getting people who care enough about these young people to actually go the extra mile was something I did not expect from a firm like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or someplace else. So I thought I would get somebody who, you know, felt like uh, they were doing, uh, you know, the Peace Corps thing by going into the hood and working with You know, and I wasn't really interested in that kind of an experience. It's interesting. You didn't want your kids to be somebody else's exotic experience. It is just, it's true. I protected our young people from that. Uh, And uh, for me to spend my time working directly with somebody uh, over the course of a year uh, who I thought was not going to get it uh, was something I wasn't very excited about. Turns out Jeff was wrong about Kwame. They hit it off. They have a lot in common. Raised by single moms in low-income Black neighborhoods. Similar senses of humor. Obsessed with the bottom line. It just shows me it's another one of those things in life that shows me, Jeff, you're not as smart as you think you are. Uh, Sometimes you think (laughs) you've figured everything out, but you haven't. Well, I would actually have a different interpretation from you. Um, There's so much good work and God's work out there, but so little of it when you step into it is rigorous, right? So if you're somebody who is looking to make your mark on the world, there aren't actually that many opportunities that feel like, oh my God, this is actually going to make a mark, right? And you happened to create something that felt to this, you know, working class man who happened to go to Harvard, who's now at Morgan Stanley. You happened to create something that felt like, I'll be damned, this this guy might actually change the world. Uh, You know, I, I know what he has sacrificed. When you see a world of scarcity and you grow up in it, Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're sort of put in uh, a world of excessive wealth, uh, to actually choose to leave that world, knowing that uh, what you're uh, giving up, all of the trappings of power and wealth that go with that, that's a lot for a young person, a uh, young, you know, uh, black Latinx person uh, who grew up poor. Uh, I would add Asian American, by the way, but yeah, please keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I would add that also uh, for a chance to. Uh, you know, do something good for kids. You know, Kwame will tell you we never discussed salary or any of the rest of that. That that wasn't part of the discussion. 
A lot of the most talented kids from poor neighborhoods, the kids in the gifted classrooms, the kids who get scholarships to private schools, a lot of them never come back. There's a brain drain. The brain drain is real. But for Jeff Canada to save his quote-unquote bad kids, he managed to recruit a quote-unquote good kid to come back home and be part of the journey. With Kwame, Jeff reversed the brain drain. That's huge. And he didn't do it with money. He doesn't have the money to compete with a Morgan Stanley salary. He did it with shared values. What's your teaching there that people listening to this might be able to take in and somehow replicate? Well, I mean, I, I think I think you uh, alluded to it. I, you know, a lot of people meet me and say, oh, I'd love to work for you. And I tell them, and they think I'm joking. Nah, you probably don't want to work for me <laughs> uh, because I will not tolerate failure for my children. That's easy to find. It's easy to get. So I, I think when people realize how serious we are about this, uh, that uh, that attracts certain people and uh, this is going to get me in trouble, but it's true. People people want a life and they need a life. Mm. Uh, and the balance of the mission we're on drives us in a way that we don't feel like we have time to waste. Uh, it's a real challenge for folks when they get up to the leadership levels of this organization. It sounds like you might be allergic to the concept of work-life balance. <laughs> it's It's interesting. Uh, because if you look at what's at stake, I don't think there's much of a uh, choice. Uh, it's like the earthquake uh, that hits Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. You can take Saturdays and Sundays off. I just don't uh, get it. Uh, but, but this is what I want to say. I want to say this one thing just for folks who are listening. Those of us who think we're sacrificing, we're not sacrificing that much. There are people who've been hung, who've been murdered, whose lives have been destroyed fighting this fight. And I feel uh, those of us who do our part, we are not doing as much as others, maybe a little more than some, but we can't get uh, caught up in the fact that we can't have these idyllic lives uh, because our country is still dealing with the vestiges of slavery, of current racism, of folks being slaughtered in the streets. And some of us who have the ability to do something about it have to do that. So, you know, I'm 69. I don't feel any less passionate about what needs to be done than I did uh, 40 years ago, because the crisis is still here with us right now. I'm going to ask you a question that really may not rise to the energy of what you've just said, but I'm going to ask it. I hear you, and then I also think, well, what about burnout? (laughs) Yes, it's real. real. No, 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 burnout is real. You have to think about if you're going into a life of service uh, and you're going to work in what I call the deep end of the pool. Everybody doesn't need to work in the deep end of the pool. The deep end of the pool is where everything is going wrong for children and families. If you choose to work in that end of the pool, then you have to train like a professional athlete. Hmm. You have to get enough sleep. 
You have to diet and exercise. You have to watch your spiritual development hmm. because this work can drain you of your key essential spiritual health. Hmm. And if you don't have a higher power that you believe in, you can get lost. Hmm. You yourself can get lost in trying to save other people. And I think that's part of this work, but this idea of a reservoir of our own sort of ability to care, uh to empathize gets used up in this work every day. Mm-hmm. And if you don't intentionally replace it, right? If, and I mean intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's meditation, it might be yoga, for me it was martial arts. If there's not some way for you to replenish that well, you'll find out that the withdrawals uh, are more than the deposits and after a while you yourself aren't in great uh, spiritual, mental, physical health in doing this work. This is a lot of food for thought. Definitely for me, hope for you too. Part of what I think and you know when I it sounds glib when I say this work is not for everybody but it's not for everybody for their entire life. Uh some folks can give 5 years, some can give mm-hmm. 10. Mm-hmm. Uh which is which is fine. If you go in and you give 5 years, I just say give everything you can in that 5 years. And if it turns out that uh you know what, I need to get away from this, uh then I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I tell everybody uh when you're with me I want you all the way with me but when you've served well uh and it's time for you to move on I want to give you nothing but respect and love uh because you did what you could do for as long as you could do it When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Jeffrey Canada came out of retirement. In addition to being board president for the nonprofit he started, he's again working day to day with his new and old recruits to reimagine education for America and beyond. I didn't really understand what the Harlem's Children's Zone was providing me. until I graduated from Truce I only hope that someday I can influence a generation as much as you all influence me. Thank you. I view Jeff in many ways as like a modern day Martin Luther King and to be able to be mentored by him, led by him, trained by him and understanding that you're going to have the ability to impact millions of lives. Why not join him? I find it humbling. I don't take seriously a comparison uh like that to Dr. King. There was a bunch of folks, uh, men and women that uh paid real prices for us to be having this conversation today from these privileged positions. So, uh that to me was was very touching. Jeffrey Canada changed the world. So can you. 
lessons from his journey. One, find your end of the pool. Could be deep, could be shallow. Wherever it is, let it be clear and prepare yourself with whatever you need to stay in for as long as you'd like. Two, huge success takes failure. No getting around that. So gather up the resources you need to allow yourself to fail and learn from it. Three, there will always be critics. Don't give all of them power over you. Focus on the few whose approval actually impacts your work, say because they got a ton of money to give you. Turn those critics into true believers. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Artfi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, think, feel, subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. We are just getting started and nothing keeps us going like a referral from you. Let me know what you think. Text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Artifi411. Guest ideas, feedback, whatever you're thinking. All right, see you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.